Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. So I had this epiphany this morning when I woke up because I'm doing the thing where I'm like waking up the same time on the weekends as, as I would during the work week. Ah. Uh, and I feel like I've like crossed a threshold. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? I do. I've been doing the same thing. I'm also like trying to wake up earlier so I can work out or go to the gym or walk or something. And oh my goodness, I just hate all of it. I hate all of that for you. I love sleep. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so good at it until now. <laughs> recently, apparently, I don't know. I, well, I feel like, you know, there's something about establishing a routine, maintaining that routine. Mm-hmm. It feels very geriatric. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be eating dinner at 4 p.m. very soon. (laughs) Speaking of geriatric, I went to Folk Fest downtown in Greensboro this weekend Mm -hmm. and walked, I shit you not, so many miles. (laughs) Is that a legit number? I'm so proud of you. (laughs) I actually should look up my steps because it was so far. Um, Because we walked like back and forth to downtown like two or three times Mm -hmm. and all around Folk Fest. Um but I woke up this morning and my hip is sore. Your hip is my sore? My hip, yeah. Like, I've had I've had foot surgeries. Uh-huh. And because of that, like, I've just always had bad joints. Mm-hmm. Um, but my hip was sore this morning. And that's how I know that I'm getting old. Oh, my goodness. That's Not even so- a chance of rain. <laughs> so, okay, okay. So, Ray and I, um, it was, like, right before we got out of bed, and Ray was, like, holding his hand like it looked like it was cramping. What? And Yeah. And I, and we're just falling apart. Because he's left-handed, and so I, he uses it, I guess, and, and does stuff every day. Huh. <laughs> I'm right-handed, and I don't seem to have that problem. So, chondroitin. Uh-huh. Uh, glucosamine and chondroitin is good for um, joints. I've given that to animals before. Well, give it to yourself. I'll add it to my pill box because yeah. I have one of those Do now it. too. Do it. I have tendonitis and I, I, well, I don't like my pain is so much less now than it was when I was younger. Thank God. Chronic yeah. pain is like, oh, it just, it, it, it affects every It depletes your spoons. Of your life. Mm-hmm. For sure. How's your spoon count these days? How you doing? Um, right now it's pretty, it's holding steady. Like it's not the highest you know, number of spoons that I could have. Yeah. But I'm pretty consistently like making it through the days right now good. without running out of spoons. That's good. So that's good. I'm going to call that a win. Oh, good. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally yeah. a win. I've been the same way. I was like really low on spoons for like a couple months. Just yeah. a lot of stresses. Yeah. Happening. Um, but I just like, I feel, you know, their whole reborn sensation is happening. <laughs> well, it's so the way that I felt for maybe a month mm-hmm. was like I was completely out of spoons. This was about the same time as you, I think. And I've slowly had to like try and make my rounds to people that I had stopped texting or responding to and apologize and be like, yo, my bad for dropping off the face of the earth mm-hmm. for a bit. I didn't yeah. mean it. Um, let's still be friends. I just had a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
coming it's back totally from that. natural and totally normal. And in fact, I got a text um, from my good friend Kelly, who was at we and so in Greensboro, we have this like amazing place called the Science Center. And there's animals and science stuff. And it's like a good place <laughs> to bring your kids. There's a ropes course. It's like the very, aquarium. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Everybody should go. So she was there with her kids and she started talking to um, a, a, a woman who who had a daughter, I think the same age as Kelly's. And she said, she was like, you know, I've just been so low on spoons lately. And this is somebody Kelly had no, like, Connection she didn't know at all. And Kelly was like, oh, like, same. And so they started talking about spoons. And this lady said, I've been listening to this podcast. What? Called Podcast Without an Audience. Excuse me? Yes. And Kelly was like, no way. Like, you know, I know Allison and everything. So I'm so glad that people who didn't know about spoon theory have a little bit more familiarity with it now and can use it as like a tool to express how they're feeling every day. Yeah, that language is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, How cool is that? Yeah, absolutely. So if that was you, let me know. I'll send you a sticker. We love to send stickers and magnets. Mm -hmm. We've still got some magnets to go out. Everything that's flat. I'm happy to send anything that's flat. We also, um, one of our new Patreons is in Finland. Oh. And she had asked... If we had a P.O. box for her to send us stuff, which we currently don't, but that might be something we should consider. I think we should. Yeah. Yeah, that would be so cool. We'll talk about that. Another time. After the show. Should we get into some psychology and history? We should. So my topic is really, really long this week. I went down the deepest rabbit hole for this topic. Everybody loves long episodes. (laughs) It's fine. I know. So, yeah, I think it's good to go ahead and just jump right into it. So several years ago, I was reading a case file. um, And case files for kids in foster care are typically either electronic or paper, like some places still use paper. And they keep them in two-inch binders. um, And usually a kid might have anywhere from like three binders up to however many binders they need. Mm -hmm. The case file I was reading was 12 binders thick. I mean, could have fit in multiple drawers. Mm -hmm. Um, At the, my, my goal was to like flip through every single page, like read as much as I could absorb Mm -hmm. it all. And at the top of one of the pages in the middle of one of the binders said, Willie M question mark. And it was circled. And I'd never seen the name before, like anywhere else in the file. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking first, like Will I Am from the Black, <laughs> from Black Eyed Peas. Close, not, but not not the same. <laughs> no, nope. got it. Um, so at first, I was wondering, like sometimes you know, social workers get busy and they stick the wrong paper in the wrong kid's file. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, maybe someone had just kind of like maybe this was for another kid. And I read the paper, and it was definitely about my kid. Um, So I was like, well, maybe it's someone who's significant to the youth. So I asked the social worker. She said that the file I was reading was a, quote, classic Willie M. case. And I asked her to elaborate. And she said she wasn't sure who Willie M. was. And it wasn't a diagnosis. But it basically meant that they were severely emotionally disturbed. Oh. So this got me to thinking. Because who the hell is Willie M.? Yeah. Why would his name be relevant to this case? Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, and also, I hate the idea of labeling a kid 
severely emotionally disturbed by just like writing the shorthand on a piece of paper. Sure. So I had lots of questions. I have so many questions too. Yeah. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Willie Leon Monteith. Oh, oh, okay. So all the information I found is public record. Mm -hmm. So um, we're not going to be talking about any of his diagnoses because those are not public record. Um, The sources, of course, are going to be listed in our... Uh, on our website Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of this information is from an interview in 1991 with Willie and his grandmother a follow-up interview in 2015 and then information about the court cases themselves and some newspaper articles at the time the injustices that were that Willie experienced are traumatic. Um, some of this is going to be a little difficult to listen to, especially if you're filling in the blanks of things that mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have information for, but mm-hmm. can assume. Sure. Um, so like, you know, take this as you can. Um, so first we're going to talk about Willie and who he is. Then I'm gonna tell you about the lawsuit mm-hmm. and the consequences of that lawsuit. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about his family. Okay. So, Willie was raised by his grandmother. In one interview, his grandmother reports that she is currently, as of, I think, 2015, raising her third generation of kids. So, Mm -hmm. she raised her own six kids. Then she raised Willie and his three siblings. And now she's raising two of her great-grandchildren. And she's only 65. Oh, bless her heart. So let's think about like just some of the the things that may that she may be experiencing, mm-hmm. right? Um, also, there's no mention of a grandfather. So she may be doing all of this as a single parent. Mm-hmm. And this is not an uncommon narrative. Like when mm-hmm. we're talking about um, generations of trauma, we're often thinking about, and, and even foster care, we're thinking about people outside of the typical nuclear family raising children. Mm -hmm. So grand care, which is like grandparents taking care of their kids is pretty common. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was able to find out only a little bit about Willie's life before he entered foster care. What we do know is that Willie is from Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh my goodness. My hometown. Yeah. This is your neck of the woods. In Christmas of 1978, Willie got a bicycle Almost immediately, like within 30 minutes, someone stole it. Mm. Willie was walking around, and about two streets over, he saw a bike that looked just like his, so he took it. There was a fight, and the police got involved, and someone ended up with a gun. No one was shot, but his mother whipped him publicly for taking this bike, and someone called DSS and reported her for child abuse. Oh, wow. What year was this? 1978. Okay. There are also reports of other problems in the home that resulted in DSS involvement. So my assumption is that this was not the first CPS report, Mm -hmm. but this was the inciting incident that led him to come into foster care. His grandmother, in an interview in 1991, maintains that the whole thing was a mistake. She says, quote, Willie was not abused, but a very nervous child who developed slowly and had trouble learning. He was just nervous. If you go to scratch your head, he'd act like you were going to hit him. Hmm. Um, Poor baby. Yeah. Like, we, of course, know that this is not the full story, and I don't want to speculate on exactly what he may have experienced Mm -hmm. in his early life. But I will say that while I believe that there is no excuse for abuse, and I don't believe in whipping kids, 
I do believe that the majority of people are doing the best that they can with the resources and information they have. Mm -hmm. Like, I genuinely believe that the majority of people do not set out to hurt children. There are other factors that come into play, and it just, like, hurts my heart to know that it happens. Mm -hmm. But I also can't judge. Like, I don't know what his mother may have experienced. Um, I It sounds to me like she just didn't have the resources to know how to handle his behaviors in any other way. Okay. So... What we do know is that he entered foster care in 1978. His grandmother reported that the judge said that Willie is, quote, a danger to society at 11 years old. Oh. So this escalated quickly. Like, we got him stealing a bike, and now the judge says he's a danger to society. So clearly we're missing information. That's interesting, especially when his flight, his trauma response seems to be to freeze or to, like, well, you know. Maybe with his mom and grandma it was to freeze, but it sounds like from him stealing a bike, he also had a strong fight response. Right. But he thought it was his, right? Well, according to the article. Got it. It's, okay. I mean, it's, of, it's, a lot of this is knows? speculation. Like, we're filling in some pretty big blanks here. Gotcha. We're going to get into the facts of this right now. I was just trying to, like, start to figure out how he got to where he did. Mm-hmm. So... Um, From 11 years old, Willie began to grow up in foster care. And throughout that time, his mental health needs became more and more apparent. It's impossible to know what was a product of, like, his formative years versus being in foster care versus biology. So let's talk for a minute about some of the settings where Willie grew up. I'm going to leave the places, the names of the places that he stayed out. Okay. Um, They're still, most of them are still open. um, And most of them, I'm acutely familiar with mm-hmm. um and ultimately it's not really relevant we're going to talk about like the types of placements so many placements would not accept willie because of his age and emotional and mental health needs quote having no other option the judge sent willie to a state training school hoping that the contained environment might set him straight so we're already realizing that people in the system don't actually know how to address willie's needs and their services that he that would have benefited him were not present. Mm-hmm. So Willie's moves included multiple psychiatric hospitals, group homes, and quote the quiet tank at the Stonewall Jackson Training School. Um, that's a direct quote from one of the articles I read. Mm-hmm. They said he, um, it was reported that they slid his meals through a slot. So oh I think he was in God. like a isolation room. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that's the training school that the judge sent him to. Mm -hmm. But think about like an 11-year-old being in isolation, having his meals slid through like a little slot in a door. Yeah, this is a heavy topic. I tried to warn you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm about to get angry, I think. Oh, it gets worse and worse. Okay. But frequent changes to placements are not uncommon in foster care. Mm-hmm. In fact, a kid who exhibits behaviors that requires care above like the most basic level, the number of moves that they have stack up pretty quickly. Like one outburst can land a kid in a psychiatric hospital or psychiatric residential treatment facility, also called a PRTF, for months. I've worked with kids who have had more than 40 placements within just a few years, and the majority of those were hospitals or PRTFs. Oh, wow. You know, Tiffany Haddish has an, uh, a nonprofit that she created that provides luggage for children in foster care mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. a lot of times they're moving from placement to placement yeah. with their stuff in trash bags. So yeah. I just learned that the other day. I thought that was 
Great. Yeah, and it is still really common. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so sad, too. I was... um, Hey, I'm trying to figure out how I want to phrase this. Sometimes pre-adoptive parents or people who are about to take in a foster kid will reach out and say, you know, how much stuff do they have? We'd like to buy them duffel bags. Mm -hmm. So it's good to know that people at higher levels are thinking about that too. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like individuals having to figure this out Mm -hmm. because even moving from a PRTF to a, you know, leveling down, Mm -hmm. like you still deserve to have luggage, even if you're not going into a home. Of course it brings a basic humanity and decency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Element. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In my field, we talk a lot about how broken our foster care system is And we can't get into all of these complexities today. But one of the big reasons that it's broken is that it wasn't designed to benefit kids. It's often used against people living in poverty, those with mental health needs, people with disabilities, and so on. The reason we know it doesn't work is because children like Willie are being put away in prisons, adult psychiatric wards, and reformatories because the state has nowhere else to put them, especially Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s. Um, recently I was talking to someone and they said that, quote, these children are being raised by therapy. And -hmm. I think that that's really powerful, um, because kids like Willie end up in group homes, um, and they have no long-term relationships. Like often their families are not involved because many DSS, um, agencies have this prejudice against biological family because they think that those are the people who traumatize the kid. Mm-hmm. So they like try and keep the kids separate from their family. Um, but that ultimately means that kids aren't being raised with care and compassion and love. They're being raised with one thing in mind, and that's to address their safety. Like we physically need a place to put them. The second thing that they focus on if they have time is mental health. Um, like once they have a place to put a kid then we can start to figure out their mental health needs right of course and then they're changing therapists all the time like therapists working in child welfare are doing the best they can however they're they're being expected to basically raise children therapists often work for the place where the child lives and then doesn't they don't follow that child when they move right right so any relationship that's built during that time is severed Mm -hmm. within a few months sure um so what we have are kids who are isolated, who are lacking attachments, who are being raised from the perspective of we've got to keep them safe and away from their family, which is a whole other mm-hmm. thing that I disagree with completely. Um, but they're also like only focusing on their mental health needs, not their emotional needs in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Again, I think therapists are doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. It's just... They're fighting a hard battle, sure. an uphill battle. I was thinking about the idea of therapy having like a set time, mm-hmm. which I think can be productive or saying like, you know, we're, we're going to have an hour long session and having those scheduled times can help you like prepare yourself for those conversations. But also I, it's hard to, to wrap up a single topic or something in, yeah. in, a, in a period of time. I was having that thought driving in the car like the other day yeah yeah and with kids it's hard too because you might spend the first half of the session just trying to get the kid to engage right sure or the first five sessions might be to trust you yeah like you're trying to develop trust and then you're trying to give the kid tools and ultimately like you're treating a 
gaping hole with a band-aid and hoping that it sticks yeah um it's just not enough yep uh, this is going to be a little bit of a longer quote. Um, in the case of Willie Monteith and others, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. After two years in institutions, he grew into an aggressive adolescent, throwing chairs against a wall um, or striking out against other children, withdrawing into a corner, a quote, classic Willie M. There are other reports of Willie assaulting staff and sitting in a corner whimpering and sucking his thumb. Again, we don't know the details of his behaviors and case because at some point it really isn't relevant what i do know is that quote severe emotional disturbance is not thrown out lightly like that term is not used mm, okay you know in every file that you read so we can assume that there's a lot more going on that we don't know about willie was frequently too violent for the adolescent wards too young for adult treatment too smart for quote mental retardation centers Yikes. hate that um, but too volatile for special education classes in public schools. He just didn't fit anywhere. And this is still the case, even though we're going to talk about the lawsuit in just a second. Like, there are kids just like Willie who are still in this predicament. Mm -hmm. um, and I see it way too often. As an adult, um, in the 1991 interview, someone went to the prison and interviewed Willie. And we'll talk about how he gets there. But Willie said, at that time, they fed me drugs I didn't need. Even the judge said that. They'll lock you up if you don't participate. And I was the type who always had to be locked up. I've been locked up my whole life. Oh, my God. Poor Willie. I know. He's right. Everyone recognized that there was a lack of treatment facilities for violent and emotionally disturbed youth. But no one knew how to address it. Yeah. Into the court case. Oh. Who? So, yeah. Who's suing who? Okay. So... The case is basically Willie M. V. Uh, Governor James Hunt in the state of North Carolina. Gotcha. So this came together in, just after Willie came into care. Okay. And we'll talk about how he was picked. But um, the court case happened in 1979 and was um, determined in 1980. Okay. Okay. So, lawyers from around the state decided to pull together a class action lawsuit. This is after one um, North Carolina representative, whose name I forgot to write down, um, basically asked lawyers to sue him because he saw everything that was going wrong in the state and didn't know a better way to fix it. So, he oh, like wow. put out this call and said, we've got to fix this. Uh -huh. Like, we're, we're putting way too much money into... I think the NC State Veterinary Program was being built or was building a new building. He was like, we're funneling so much money into this when we have children with severe emotional disturbances who have nowhere to go. Like, mm -hmm. we need to get our priorities straight. Sure. Um, so to make any changes at all, the lawyers needed to find an ideal lead plaintiff. So they put together three criteria to find kids that would make for a good court case because this is how class action lawsuits work. Number one, the youth needed to be from Charlotte because they wanted the U.S. District Court Judge James McMillan to preside over the case because he was one of the more progressive judges in the state. Okay. So they very specifically yeah, picked Charlotte. Very intentional. Yeah. <clears throat> Number two, they weren't sure how long the case was going to last, so they needed a child who would still be in the foster care system if the case went on for more than five years. 
Oh, my God. So they were looking for a young kid who was not going to be 18 by the time sure. the case wrapped up. Not just because it would benefit their case for him to still be young or for them to still be young, but because um, they wanted them to benefit from any outcome of the case. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And number three, they wanted someone sympathetic. Sure. So William fit this bill. Okay. Uh, he was 11 years old at the time and he was afraid of the dark. So his lawyers thought he would present well. Oh, same. <laughs> Being afraid of the dark. Yes. I know. But just thinking about like the point that you get to to whittle down all these characteristics yeah. and still have an emotionally disturbed child mm-hmm. who is struggling with so much and in a shitty place, but he's cute and afraid of the dark. So, mm. you know, that yeah. benefits people. Oh, that's so tough. So I'm going to introduce you to our lawyer or one of them. Um, his name is Robert McDonald. He was actually in court the day that Willie's mom lost custody. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was part of Willie's case from the beginning, like mm-hmm. when he entered the system. McDonald's one of the lawyers who would eventually bring the class action against the state. In total, there were seven attorneys from five private law firms and two public interest agencies. One was the Carolina Legal Assistance for Mental Health, and the second was the Juvenile Justice Legal Advocacy Project. And there were four children, four plaintiffs. Willie was the first one on the list, which is why he's like the lead. Sure. Okay. On October 5th, 1979, a class action lawsuit was filed against the state of North Carolina and the U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina. The suit defines the class as, quote, all minors who now or in the future will suffer from serious emotional, mental, or neurological handicaps accompanied by violent or assaultive behavior and for whom the state provides no treatment, end quote. Mm. What this program offered was basically additional services. So that's what they were trying to figure out how to address this class of people. Mm-hmm. Some of the services they talked about were community integration, um, substance abuse treatment, developmental daycares, summer programs, special education classes, group homes, supervised independent living, respite care, um, work skill development, apprenticeships, inpatient services, psychiatric treatment, medical care, and basically anything else that they thought yeah. might benefit these kids. The point is that they were prioritizing children that would have otherwise just kind of been put away mm-hmm. and locked away. Yeah. Yeah. The suit claimed that the plaintiffs had a right to due process under the 5th and 14th Amendments in the U.S. Constitution and a right against cruel and unusual punishment under the 8th and 14th Amendments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The suit was designed to accomplish two things. Number one, make the state accountable for its legal responsibilities to these children. Like if you're bringing children into foster care in order to quote-unquote protect them, Mm -hmm. You need to actually be doing something. Sure, and have resources to accommodate them. Yep. And number two, they wanted to force the state to create a delivery system that could offer long-term commitment to the variety of needs that this group had. Mm -hmm. So first, you got to realize that we're doing so many injustices to these kids. Mm -hmm. And second, you've got to be held accountable sure. um, and put in place a system that will address these needs. So I'm going to read directly from the clearinghouse because the verbiage is important in this piece. Okay. 
The parties agreed that aggressive and violent youths with psychological, neurological, and developmental disabilities would be entitled to individualized rehabilitation and appropriate education in the least restrictive environment possible. The consent decree included a schedule for compliance requiring North Carolina to meet certain benchmarks um, for numbers of children served. Okay, makes sense. Our guy, Judge James B. McMillan, adopted the stipulations as his findings of fact and conclusions of law and approved the consent decree on February 24th of 1982. Okay. So it was was about five years. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The settlement occurred on the eve of the trial. So rather than taking it to trial, they settled out. Okay. North Carolina agreed to treat assault of disturbed children in their home communities as part of the Willie M. um, project. Oh, wow. $744 million was invested in the Willie M. program. And here are the results. Okay. Um, individual education and medical treatment plans in the least restrictive setting, which is one of the things we were hoping for. Yeah. Placements that are, quote, actually needed as determined by assessments rather than services that are, quote, currently available. So we're not just sticking kids in places that have beds. Sure. We're looking for what is actually going to benefit these kids. Right. With the stipulation that sometimes they could not find, mm-hmm, of course, you know, a place that would benefit them. So in that case, they would need to move them within a reasonable time. They agreed to create a new delivery system. They immediately provided appropriate treatment for the four plaintiffs. They identified other children in the state who may belong to the class. And they participated in establishing a five-member review panel to examine the treatment and education of the four plaintiffs and all potential class members. So Willie was brought back to Charlotte, and he was not locked up anymore, and he lived in a nice house. I'm thinking like Victor's Row. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I love the Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's so appropriate because... The victors weren't actually victors. They were just survivors. Right, exactly. And they were kind of put in this nice place to, you know, say, look what we've done. Right. It's look not, what we've it's like done. A, a veil being pulled over. Right, exactly. Um, that's a great analogy. What the Willie M. program did not include was minors in the custody of the Department of Corrections. So children mm-hmm. involved with DJJ were not entitled to be part of the Willie M. program. Which is hugely disappointing uh, because they're probably the ones who needed it the most. Sure, sure. Oh, man. So anybody who had been convicted could not be Right, any elsewhere. child who had been convicted. Right, sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm so They're sorry. just going to try them as adults and, yeah. and move on. Got yeah, exactly. It. All right, you ready for this? Okay, I think so. On January 21st, 1998... The U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina granted the state's motion to terminate the class action and court enforcement of the consent decree. There were several reasons, but they found that the court supervision of the parts of the consent decree based on federal law was no longer necessary because the defendants had demonstrated substantial compliance. So they were like, you've done a good job. You don't have to follow the rules anymore. anymore. We trust you to do it on your own. Right. Oh, my goodness. The court held that the remaining issues addressed state compliance with state law and therefore were best supervised in state court. So in 1999, the U.S. discontinued the Willie M. program. You know, people won't do stuff unless you make them. It just doesn't fucking happen. It's why we have a seatbelt law. It's why we're not using. It's why people are still making 725 an hour. Yeah. 
I'm getting into some statistics in just a second, but hold on to that minimum wage argument because we're getting there. Okay. (laughs) Services for aggressive children with mental disabilities were incorporated into the Department of Human Resources, Division of Mental Health, Developmental Delays, and Substance Abuse Services. So basically they said this is no longer an issue in the law. We're going to now give it to the Department of Human Resources to figure out how to manage. So that's kind of beginning to end what the what the Willie M program looked like mm-hmm. was they you know wanted to establish something that would hold people accountable that would address the needs of these kids. They never actually did a lot of the things that they set out to do. And mm-hmm. then in 1999, they were like, "Well, you've done pretty a uh, decent job, so let's you know discontinue funding for this." Yeah, and it's all it's really about the funding. Yeah, exactly. Which girl girl get your girl girl (laughs) what happened to willie m oh the same thing that happens to a lot of kids that grow up in the foster care system his days in the willie m program included joining a boy scout troop having support from peers and staff and living in an independent living program okay so he was 11 when the action class action suit started Mm -hmm. five or six years later he would have been 16, 17. Mm-hmm. So he was about to age out. Yeah. But he still got to benefit from a year or two of this program. Right. Psychologists told him that he had the mind of an eight-year-old when he turned 18. Oh, wow. Because a lot of times, again, kids in foster care don't have access to the best educational oh, yeah. services. A lot of times they're behind. Um, they don't have access to good high quality education before they turn five Mm -hmm. for a multitude of reasons um so he was probably behind from the beginning he may have also had some developmental delays he's basically functioning at an eight-year-old level gotcha when he turned 18 the program ended there were no boy scout troops no independent living and no counselors so he he aged out so he he was no longer but the and but it didn't end until 98 correct gotcha yeah yeah the program itself continued but once you age out of foster care right like now we have an 18 to 21 program Mm -hmm. which i have so many issues with and again i can't make like we could be here for hours Mm -hmm. deconstructing all that's wrong with our foster care system um but yeah at 18 he was done Later, he was arrested and began serving time for selling crack to a police officer. Undercover police officer. Right. <laughs> Willie said, quote, when I got arrested, I felt that it was a rescue. I could have been dead, but look where I'm at now. I think it's something to laugh and think about. While he was in prison, the Social Security Administration stopped giving Willie his disability benefits, which is not uncommon. Right. However, when he was released from prison in 2009, he requested to have them reinstated, and that was denied. The Social Security Administration's reasoning was that Willie would not be disabled if he'd stop using drugs and alcohol. That's interesting. However, <laughs> okay, considering, considering comments. Yeah. We now know all that... We don't know all that Willie went through. Mm-hmm. We know a lot that Willie went through. And he was deemed disabled long before his drug and alcohol abuse began. Right. Also, we fucking know that drugs and alcohol are used to self-medicate. Mm-hmm. Like, being disabled, living in poverty, and with housing instability, having a record... Why would we expect that Willie would be able to go to doctor's appointments regularly enough to maintain a medication regimen and treat his mental health needs appropriately? Mm-hmm. Like, of course he's medicating to get through the day in any way that he can. Mm-hmm. Like, this is why we don't need to have a war on drugs. We need to be addressing addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Willie went to war a second time with the system 
and appealed the Social Security Administration's decision to deny his disability benefits, and he won. Okay. So he did eventually have them reinstated. Oh, thank God. Now, I don't know much more about Willie beyond that point. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know where he is now. I decided to not look up his court record myself because Mm -hmm. I don't think that that would be appropriate. That's also not what we're talking about here. Sure. There are so many things to discuss, but ultimately, there are still kids in the foster care system whose needs are made worse within the system, who often have no place to go. The system is waiting out the clock for them to be able to have them tried as an adult and incarcerated because there's literally nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Like, as Willie said, um, when I got arrested, I felt that it was a rescue. Mm -hmm. Like, he now has dependable meals and a structure that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, like, we're institutionalizing kids and then there's a disconnect between why they end up in prison later. Right. Is the is his name used as a term outside of the state of North Carolina? So, great question. Um, will the Willie M program was modeled by other states? Okay, I don't know that they use the term Willie M outside of North Carolina. Gotcha. Okay, because it was a class action suit sure. here, mm-hmm. um, and we were the first state to create something like this. Oh. Um, It's also not something that most social workers use anymore. Like, social workers who have been in the field for a while are familiar with William um, because they were around while the William program was in place. But newer social workers, like, I didn't, I'd never heard of Mm -hmm. William or the program until a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the cycle continues. In um, one of the last quotes that I saw from Willie in, in his original interview was I am the Willie M and he is me and I will be him until the day I die oh yes you will yeah you are all that that entails like yeah. anyways oh what a tragic you story. know f- failing of not only Willie but so many other yeah uh, young people yeah um I'm going to share a few foster care statistics with you. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Because this is such an upper. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, love it. (laughs) These statistics are from childrensrights.org, and most of them are from 2019. On any given day, there are 424,000 children living in the foster care system in the United States. Mm -hmm. The average length of time in foster care is a year and a half. Okay. um, But 5% have stayed for more than five years. Mm. A third of the children in the foster care system are young people of color. More than 71,000 children who are legally free for adoption are still waiting for adoptive homes. Mm. In 2019, more than 20,000 children aged out of foster care without permanent families. These children are proven to be more likely to experience homelessness, unemployment, and incarceration, Mm -hmm. just like Willie. Um, these are more recent statistics. An increase. Uh, recent study showed that an increase of one dollar to the minimum wage in a given area led to a nine point six percent reduction in child protective service reports made in that area. Yeah, I can't remember. You had said some. I don't. I don't know if you had used that statistic earlier, but in one of the other episodes we were talking about, I think it was adoption, maybe. Yeah. And I. Th- that is so interesting. I know. Well, and it's because when you take away stressors from families yeah. and are giving them more resources, mm-hmm. then child abuse goes down. Like people want to be good parents yeah yeah and when they're given the tools to be able to achieve that 
then less CPS reports are made and less children are being injured. Mm-hmm. Also, more than half of all children of color living at or below the poverty line in the U.S. will experience a Child Protective Services report on their behalf. I think it's like 56%. Mm. So. Wow. Yeah, so that's the story of Willie M. and uh, Willie M. v. North Carolina. Wow, that is not at all like that. I'm at a loss for words, and that never happens. (laughs) I found i when i showed up today to record i told you that my notes were 11 pages long double space like mm-hmm. i've never written anything this long and it's because i am so angry of at course. this system sure and i also hate that the program lived on for as long as it did and willie M was just kind of forgotten about right like he didn't have the positive outcome that we could all hope for right um, he be- was able to benefit for one or two years. And in theory, those one or two years, the program was probably being set up. Yeah. And so I'm sure he, he wasn't able to really participate. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he, um, I mean, I for my own research, I'll probably go back and like find out more about who he is and what his longer term outcomes have been. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the most recent information I have on him was early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the interview from 2015, but it was kind of hard to tell exactly when that interview had taken place because it was updated in 2015. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, I just think that there's so much to think about and unpack here. Oh, absolutely. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank every social worker oh, my out God. there every teacher, every therapist, everybody who is doing their best to work within the parameters and the structures of the current laws in each of our states and federally. Yeah. Doing the best they can to to raise the babies of of our generation. Yeah. And families too. Like families are just doing their best right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I genuinely believe that people want to do good by their kids. Like I can't help but not think that. So shout out to all the families that might be struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that things get better. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we can all be part of a change to make things better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. Let's take a break and have, have a, a quick breather. Have a shot of tequila. <laughs> Everyone take a deep breath on this something. break. We'll be right back. But we are coming back with a Patreon pick, my friend. So we are going to bring it up. Oh, good. Bring oh, it good. Up. <laughs> we'll be right back. we're back all right everybody so for our history topic today we have a patreon pick from miss christina colombo who uses she her pronouns and she chose the history topic of the history of ponzi schemes what the hell's a ponzi scheme i feel like i've heard this so many times but and i talk about the history and then i also focus on one particular scheme um so, little combo, little Our, shrimp basket combo. I'm sure you're going to answer my question, but I really love posing questions at the very beginning. Yes. Are Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes the same thing? They are not. Really? 
No, and I will. All right. That bridge. Cool. Any well, other questions? Um, always, but <laughs> I'll let you get started. Okay. So, quote, Ponzi schemes promise high financial returns or dividends not available through traditional investments. Instead of investing the funds, the con artist pays these dividends to the initial investors using the funds of subsequent investors. The scheme generally falls apart when the operator flees with all the proceeds or when a sufficient number of new investors cannot be found to allow the continued payment of dividends, end quote. So basically like <laughs> borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Oh, got it. So if I decide I want you to invest in my series of, you know, cat hair treatment items, then you give me all your money. I also get, you know, Billy Bob and Mary Sue over there to, to donate. And then I promise you a X percent return on your investment. And then never pay me back. Either I never pay you back or I take what Bobby Sue and Mary Jo or whatever I said their names are, the money that they've <laughs> given to me and I pay it to you. So you think that you've made a return on your investment. Okay. But in the same family as pyramid schemes. Yes. Okay. Just a little bit. I'm just going to jump there. Let me see. So the difference between a Ponzi and a pyramid scheme is that Ponzi schemes involve investing uh, and then walking away and uh, banking on the fact that that money is going to be returned later. Mm-hmm. And a pyramid scheme implies that you can work to make money and invest your time, your energy, your money um, in a program. Okay. Okay. It's coming together for me now. So Ponzi is just an investment scheme where Got you it. think you're investing money and either they're investing it and taking it all, but most likely they're just not So the type of um, Ponzi schemes, this type of fraud is named after its creator, Charles Ponzi of Boston, Massachusetts. Quote, in the early 1900s, Ponzi launched a scheme that guaranteed investors a 50% return on their investment in postal coupons. Although he was able to pay his initial investors back, the scheme dissolved when he was unable to pay later investors. End quote. What happened was one day he receives this letter and basically it's like an advertisement um, from a company in Spain and it has information on international reply coupons, which is a coupon that can be exchanged for a number of priority uh, airmail stamps, basically, okay, um, from another country. So it's stamps. It's like stamp trading. It's like, okay, so you have a stamp from London. Uh Uh-huh. It's worth more in the Netherlands. So you invest all of these, you know, all this money in these London stamps and you sell them in the Netherlands for a profit. This sounds like the most 1900s. It's so vintage right now. (laughs) I mean, just thinking about stamp collectors. Yeah. Like this would be their jam. Uh Uh-huh. Um, except that they're typically not doing it for a ton of money. They're doing it because they like to collect stamps. (laughs) Right. It's a very, yeah. You would think it's like a mild industry for fraud, right? (laughs) Well, maybe not. I don't know. Have you seen the documentary of the guy who like faked all those like elite wines? No. 
that's all I know about it. I couldn't tell you who it was <laughs> or where I saw it, but it was like this guy who was, you know, selling all these really high priced wines and he was like making them in the bathtub and like oh. combining all these other cheap wines. Cause you know, wine is like, you know, unless you're a sommelier or something like that, you know, my palate is trash. So I don't know. <laughs> I definitely need to see this documentary now. Yeah. I have a few people on my list to watch it with. When I get some um, more information, I will get back to you. That would be great. So Ponzi realized that he could turn a profit by buying these coupons in one country and exchanging them for more expensive stamps or selling them in another country. They found out Mr. Ponzi's scam and he was arrested August 12th, 1920, and he was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud. That fucking sucks. Mail fraud. Mail fraud. Yeah. And so he ended up owing like $7 million. In the 1920s? In the 1920s. That's how many, like, stamps we're talking about. It's crazy. (laughs) I can't imagine that many stamps. He pled guilty. So he was like, yeah, it was me. His wife ends up divorcing him. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he died penniless in Brazil on January 18th, 1949. Now, how the fuck did he get to Brazil? He just went. He paid his shit. All right. All right. Went to Brazil. Cool. Did his time. Went to Brazil. All right. Died penniless. Probably died penniless. Bought a ticket to go to Brazil. Which is also like an old timey thing to say. He died penniless. We'd be like he was broke. <laughs> you know. Um, so the most famous Ponzi scheme was created by Bernard Madoff or Bernie Madoff. Because oh, he made off with all the familiar. money. <laughs> <laughs> it's a name I'm familiar with. Uh-huh. Um, and it's known as the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Madoff founded a penny stock brokerage in 1960, which eventually grew into Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. And people started heavily investing as early as the 1960s and 70s. So right away, he was doing pretty good. Bernard Madoff created the illusion of an exclusive investment community where he would invest the the money of the elite, both in New York, across the U.S. and abroad. He promised a 1% gain for each month the investments were in his hands, which seemed like a very safe and secure amount. So think about Ponzi. Mm -hmm. He was promising a 50% return. Right. So like as a person with a brain, you can know that that sounds kind of like red alert, right? Yeah, a little sketchy. But a, you know, 10% increase over a year seems like a pretty safe investment to me. Did you say 10% or 1%? 1% every month. Okay. So like a 10 to 12% every year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very, you know. A little bit more Seems legit. So he marked his services as very exclusive. So you had to know somebody that he was currently already working with in order to be able to work with him. It was like a word of mouth thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So this caused people to become intrigued and even more interested in working with him. This created social feedback. Your friend tells you that you're investing and making a 10% profit each year. I'm now interested. Uh, And this just makes him more and more credible. And from a psychology standpoint, like I understand it because like 50% of your brain is saying, this seems like a safe investment. Everybody else is investing. Everybody right. else is getting rich quick. Like, why can't I? Um, but also, maybe it seems too good to be true. And then the other half of your brain is like, well, I can't, you know, what if it's not? Yeah. What if I really could? Yeah. 
For investors, it appeared that Bernie's investment company was completely legit. He provided monthly reports with what companies and what stocks he was investing in. Um, There were also quarterly reports, like 941s were being filed, um, and investors were receiving 1099s at the end of each year. So it all appeared to be working, you know, as a a legit company. Spoiler alert, you know. I think we all know how the story ends. (laughs) Um, It's important to note that while private investors were essentially waiting in line to work with this guy, none of the major firms on Wall Wall Street chose to trade with him. And in fact, quote, several high-ranking executives at those firms suspected his operation and claims were not legitimate. Others contended it was inconceivable that the growing volume of Madoff's accounts could be completely and legitimately serviced by his documented accounting and auditing firm, which was a three-person firm with only one active accountant. End quote. That's a red flag. Yeah, for sure. If you have three people working for you, um, and only one of them is like a CPA, (laughs) uh, and you're investing all this money, that seems a little... A little sketchy. A little iffy. And it turns out that they were right. And in December of 2008, according to an FBI report, Bernie told his son that he was struggling to meet a $7 billion redemption where investors were like redeeming on their profits, mm-hmm. a payout. It turns out that Bernie had been depositing the invested funds into a bank account and using the same bank account at JP Morgan Chase to pay the redemptions. He was just putting the money in and taking it right back out. His bank made notes of his patterns and his account seemed to be dwindling and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, And he was also being investigated at the time for the delays and lack of redemptions being paid. Quote, his Chase account had over $5.5 billion in mid-2008. Oh, my gosh. But by late November, was down to $234 million. Bless his heart. He's he's (laughs) going to, like, over-withdraw. Yeah. Well, which was not even a fraction of the outstanding redemptions. With banks having all but stopped lending, Madoff knew he could not even begin to borrow the money he needed. On December 3rd, he told longtime assistant Frank DePascoli, I don't know if that's how you say it, who had overseen the fraudulent advisory business, uh, that he was finished. So he told him, he's like, I'm done. On December 9th, he told his brother Peter about the fraud. According to his sons, Madoff told Mark, which is one of the sons, on the following day uh, that he planned to pay $173 billion in bonuses two months early. So he's still, like, not learning any... Right. Like, he's still making promises to people that he's not going to be able to keep and, Mm -hmm. like, keeping up this front as though he's doing well. Correct. And he's attempting to, with the last bit of his... You know, he's got $234 million in the bank... And then he's hoping to to take 173 of that out to pay bonuses to his himself and his employees. Mm-hmm. So really, he's trying to get ahead of being caught um, and making sure that he's financially good and his team is. Right. Mark told Andrew that he was going to withdraw this money for the bonuses. And 
They went to him and asked how he could pay the bonuses to his staff if he was having trouble playing, paying the clients. Great question. Mm-hmm. Valid. They then traveled to Madoff's apartment and Madoff told them he was finished and he had absolutely nothing left and that his investment fund was, quote, just one big lie and basically a giant Ponzi scheme, end quote. So if he, like, I wonder what his long-term goal was. Like, if he knows it's not sustainable, he's telling people he doesn't have the money, still promising money to his employees. Mm -hmm. Like, at what point did he expect to just, like, cut and run or... Right, and where would he have gone? Offshore accounts are a thing, right? Yes. So... There's banks everywhere. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, like, what is he thinking by just hanging out and being like nah i don't have the money i'm just kind of done with this now like yeah that was a fun pastime but yeah i have no idea what he could have been thinking i mean i believe that the the firm uh, you know started as a legitimate uh investment sure company but then no one would trade with him like he wasn't trading on wall street right he was he i mean he was trading on wall street but none of the big major companies were investing in him they're all basically like you know people Got it. So companies weren't like, hey, take care of this for me. Yeah. So essentially, his sons reported their father to the federal authorities. And it turns out that after they had that initial conversation where he was like, it was just one big lie, basically it was a giant Ponzi scheme. As soon as his son, or as soon as they left the uh, apartment, they basically contacted a lawyer. Yeah. Which I think, you know, at that point... They're trying to cover cover their own asses, which, yeah. you know, makes sense. Um, and on December 11th, 2008, he was arrested and charged with securities fraud. Bernie was able to make his bail, which was set at $10 million. He was then placed on 24-hour watch and house arrest in his penthouse apartment. Well, oh, well, that must be so hard. You know. His bail was then revoked by Judge uh, Denny Chin, uh, and they sent him back to the Metropolitan Correctional Center. And Chin believed that he was a flight risk because of how much money he had I and mean, how little he had to lose, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you could just hop on a plane. Go to Brazil. Go to Brazil. Like a Ponzi. <laughs> Quote, on June 26, 2009, Chid ordered a forfeiture of $170 million in Madoff's assets. Prosecutors asked Chin to sentence Madoff to 150 years in prison, it's which he was time. sentenced to. Yes. All right. So I lied earlier. Andrew is his other son. Peter is his brother. Mark and Andrew and his brother, Peter, were all sued. Um for negligence and breach of fiduciary duty, which makes sense because fiduciary yeah. liability is just all about, you yeah. know, who's going to take the fall. So they were all sued for $198 million. Peter was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2012, and Mark died by suicide in 2010, exactly two years after his father's arrest. Andrew died of lymphoma on September 3rd, 2014. Bernie was sentenced to 150 years uh, in prison and died of kidney disease in April of 2021. So what I imagine, though, is the stress surrounding all of those lies. Like, how do you keep it straight? And when you have 
billions like with a b like fucking rihanna (laughs) shit in your (laughs) bank account that doesn't belong to you right um well i think there has to be some disconnect because at some level you've got to be like oh this is my money sure um because you're ripping off so many people and you're taking advantage of so many people like there has to be a level of entitlement like i deserve this money because they gave it to me right I don't know. I just yeah. Well, and you and you rationalize it in your mind, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah. So sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and twenty ten. I mean, that's fifty years of like one pot, like a crock pot situation. You just throw it all in <laughs> and serve boil. it up. Yeah. Um, but people people lost like everything. People lost all this money that they had invested. Some people were, had been investing with him since the seventies. So, very tragic. Don't do a Ponzi scheme. Don't also do a pyramid scheme or an MLM or any of them. Yeah. I think that pyramid schemes and MLMs, um, kind, like, I can rationalize them better. Like, people are trying to work. They're trying to figure out a job that will work for their schedule where they can still, like, make money. Um, ultimately, we know that the outcomes for pyramid schemes are not great. Mm-hmm. And the success is minuscule because yeah. they set you up for failure. Yeah. We are going to, I'm, there are so many things I want to do with that in later oh, I episodes. Know. Oh, I totally get that. Um, but Ponzi schemes, I feel like, at least with pyramid schemes and multi level marketing, you realize that you're you kind of know what you're getting into Mm -hmm, with Ponzi schemes. There's a whole level of deceit. Exactly. You know, it makes it difficult to avoid. It's you're getting scammed. You're absolutely. And, and it like, it turns out and I didn't realize like how much trust is associated with investments. Yeah. I am giving a stranger all of my money, assuming that they are credible, assuming that they're legitimate, assuming right. that it's not fraud. Right. And if I'm being produced, like if, 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 if monthly reports about my investments are being produced, you know, that's all the proof I need. Well, and what I think made Bernie especially successful was that his, um, he was selective with the people that he would work with. Right. So it made him appear more credible than he actually was because people were like, oh, let me tell you about this guy. This has been my success. He's phenomenal. And so people were coming to him, Mm -hmm. which gave him this edge. Yeah. Because he was considered elite. Yeah. 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 Oh, and if you trust somebody, I trust him too. Some shit. Yeah. Yikes. That's fascinating. Um, I just... I. I can't help but wonder what they expected the long-term outcomes of their schemes to be because it didn't end well for either of them. Well, and, and, you know, if his kids didn't know and, you know, I wonder, like, if the people who worked for him knew, if if you're a first-time, you know, if you hire somebody off the street and teach them accounting, you know, they're running reports within their, you know, systems or back before there was a, a, a accounting software. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that can be altered yeah yeah so i wonder if they knew well and also like at what point does a legitimate 
idea mm-hmm. turn into a Ponzi scheme? Right, exactly. Like, do you start out with the idea that you're going to take advantage of this many people to make money? Or do you start out with the, this is my idea, then people start giving you money and before you realize that you've developed a Ponzi scheme? You know, I bet it started out with like a Petri dish situation, like a little penicillin sitch where he forgot yeah. And then just paid them out and then realized that it didn't make a difference because he has $5 billion in the bank. Right. And why do all this extra work? First of all, how can one person, and I don't know how that's like divvied up between all of the investors, mm-hmm. but $5 billion is a lot of money. Oh, How for do you sure. keep track of all those particular investments? And... Um, you have to have a really good Excel spreadsheet. Oh, my God. And, like, before <laughs> all that was, you know, like, I think about 401k and IRAs. Like, yeah. your projected retirement date, depending on how you have it set up, your re- projected retirement date could be 50 years down the line. And that somebody's job is to maintain that within that time, mm-hmm. regardless of if you're contributing to it right. or not. Yeah. So, it's just wild. Wow. Yeah, it is. So let's talk intersections. Let's do it. Um, So we know we're we're both talking about two separate sets of systems. Mine Mm -hmm. is a very, like, privileged system where people are voluntarily uh, using, um, you know, various ways of making money and they're, they're voluntarily going into it. And, you know, Willie didn't have a choice in yours. I think that we're looking at, yeah, two extremes Mm -hmm. of the same system that benefits people that you're talking about and disadvantages people that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. Like, um, there's so much privilege associated with being, even like having the money to invest in a Ponzi scheme. Right. Right? Like... Um, that's just not accessible oh, for, for sure. the majority of people that we sort of talked about in our class action lawsuit. Like these are children and families that have been disadvantaged by these systems that benefit off of them staying in poverty. What I think is interesting is that Ray and I have had several conversations about like generational wealth mm-hmm. and, um, it goes back to like education about being taught about stocks, bonds, like what are kids learning in schools? Yeah. Did did kids have a civics and economics class? Because I did, and Ray said that he did not. So even, you know, I can only imagine people who were seeking to better themselves by investing and then being taken advantage of, even if they weren't like the super elite, just yeah. like in other yeah, Ponzi yeah. scheme situations, like thinking back to like 1920, where somebody's like, you know, uh, Here's my money for stamps. Yeah, here's uh, stamps sounds like a cool thing to invest in and yeah. then and then being taken advantage of, but obviously you're right. Within the larger scheme of things, my people are are way better off obviously. Um and and benefiting more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that I had a thought and lost it. Where'd it go? I don't know. <gasps> oh, um, so when we're talking about like the elite upper class, the mm-hmm. one percenters or those pushing the one percenters and then kind of the upper middle class versus like people living in poverty and how these different people perceive money. 
-hmm. Like people living in poverty are often living, you know, hand to mouth. They're figuring it out paycheck by paycheck. Mm -hmm. People in the middle are figuring out how to get up higher. So they might have a little bit more discretionary funds to invest. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, people like Bernie are living well. Like they're they're not worried about any of these, you know, how are we going to feed our kids tonight? Oh, no way. But the rhetoric around how people get from poverty to even middle class is, well, you need to learn to budget or you need to not spend money on these things so that you can do these things. When really the biggest difference between people with money and people without money is the lack of money. Like it's not about poor money management most of the time. It's this is the way that their family has lived for generations. Mm -hmm. So then we can start talking about the intersections of, you know, generational poverty versus generational wealth Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, like growing up in these two different systems and often they don't have any concept for how the other one lives. Mm -hmm. And of course with that comes generational trauma or, you know, whatever else. Yeah. And then of course, you know, we, those are just two systems, not even discussing like the mental health portion and and how that. Yeah. Goes along. Yeah. And I mean, mental health exists in every population, like mental health needs and issues exist in every population. Um, But who's more likely to be victimized by their mental health versus those who are more likely to be able to receive treatment for their mental health. Well, and back to what you had said earlier is that, you know, him being raised by therapists. Yeah. Just the the privilege of have of being able as somebody in a stable home or a mm-hmm. consistent space to have longevity with their therapists yeah. and to have, you know, those full full cycle experiences and and conversations and be able to progress with them and how he was not able to do that yeah i mean i've been with my therapist for two years a lot of the kids i work with have been with their therapist for less than two months Mm -hmm. and it's not because you know they just don't like their therapist it's that they're moving or whatever else yeah absolutely so there's so much privilege associated with um with money and with being able to even have some of these conversations. Absolutely. A lot of things to unpack. Oh, we should start a podcast. (laughs) And thank you to Christina for choosing the Ponzi scheme topic, because I think that was a really good way to, to enter, to intersect. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love when our topics are tangential like this, like Mm -hmm. they sort of connect, but you know, there's no direct correlation. We're just talking about, people's experiences Mm -hmm, absolutely so thank you christina thank Thank you you. thank you if you would like to choose a topic for us head over to patreon.com search for us we are under podcasts without an audience at a certain tier you're able to choose a topic for us we also have the pasta recipe up for grabs our close friends group on facebook where Uh, instagram on instagram thank you Mm -hmm. facebook is passe I I just don't like it. If you like it, thank you for liking it. And <laughs> we that's will great. not be liking it. We will not be liking it. Um, I posted a picture on the close friends group because I tried on this like freaking gorgeous jumpsuit. Oh, at anthropology. Did you get it? No, I didn't get it because I had no idea what? where to wear it. 
literally anywhere all the time. And that's what I was posing the question. I was like, I need y'all's help. So some people gave me some suggestions, but I, d- I might go back and get it. I think you should. You think I should? I think you should be uh, wearing that to like a casual brunch. A casual brunch? A casual brunch. You could wear it um, when you're out walking Obi. Really? No. No, no. you can't. No. I'm just trying to give you practical everyday things because I want you to get it so that I can then borrow it from you. That's a good point. That's a good point. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening. Keep listening.